All right. As we get our seats, to, why don't we uh, bow our heads and let's uh, pray together, shall we? Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you again. We thank you for today. Even in this heat, Lord, we thank you. Thank you that we can come together. Lord, it's easy to find things to gripe about or not feel comfortable about, but Lord, help us to appreciate this opportunity to come together to worship you, Lord. Because in all conditions, it is you who we praise. It is you who we worship and why we gather. So, Lord, we thank you. May your spirit be here with us. Keep us awake and focused. Help us to be able to hear your word. And may it speak to us, Lord God, and to our hearts. We ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Now, if you remember last week, I started off talking about phobias, right? And, and asked, you know, how, I don't know how many of you have different phobias or different fears. And from what I understand, we all may have similar but different fears that you've experienced, right? Depending upon, you know, we all are different and we had different life experiences. So you may have certain fears or certain phobias similar to someone, maybe different from others, right? And I told you I didn't show any images, so I didn't want to trigger any anxiety in all of you. Well, similarly today, well, uh, you know, when we talk about differences and stuff, it's the same thing with desires and temptations, right? Just like we may have different fears or different phobias, we may have different desires or different temptations. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to show images of what you may be tempted with. Actually, maybe I will. Okay. Here are some of you. Which one would you be more tempted by? Chocolate or candy? How many of you are more tempted by chocolate? How much is more tempted by candy? All right, we're less candy people here. How about this? How many more tempted by ramen or beef noodle soup? How many is more ramen? How many have beef noodle soup? How many of you are like, I don't want to even talk about hot soup right now? Okay? We all have our different preferences or weaknesses, right? I saw this uh, meme over this, uh, this past week. How would you answer this one? If you had to take away one of these, which one would you take away? We all know the right answer, right? Fried fish? Fried fish is the right answer, right? Would you take away burgers, tacos, pizza, fried chicken, or steak, pasta? I think the right answer is fried fish. I I assume so, right? We all may have different, different answers because we differ. Our desires would be different from each other. Our temptations are a little bit different from each other. And the issue about how we deal with temptations, don't worry, I'll get rid of the screen soon so we don't get all hungry, okay? But how we deal with our temptations is the issue, right? How we deal with our desires. And usually how people address temptations, right? The tempting desires. Usually they feel like if I'm going to overcome these temptations, I just have to deprive myself of, of whatever it may be. And so people usually think how to deal with temptation is just deprivation. Just cut it off. But in reality, 
deprivation alone isn't enough to deal with temptations. If you just cut it off. Because the real source, the real problem with temptations still remains. Regardless of whatever you change in your environment. And that issue, that source, that problem area is the heart. The Bible talks about the heart is that, that place in us that, that our, our desires, our will, our intentions, all those things, that's where it resides in our heart. So metaphorically, we think of a heart as that which contains our desires, our will, our intentions, right? So that's the problem area when we're talking about temptations. So in our passage today, Jesus is going to address three different people, three categories of people. But there's going to be one singular message to these three groups of people. And that message is, pay attention to the condition of your heart. Pay attention to the condition of your heart. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Pick it up in verse 1. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around him. And when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they carefully washed their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? So here we see the Pharisees and the scribes, and we haven't seen them in a while in our coverage of Mark, but here they come onto the scene, and they're coming from Jerusalem, and they come to scrutinize Jesus. They're scrutinizing Jesus and his disciples. Just to kind of backtrack, what do we know about the Pharisees and the scribes? Well, they they rose to become the main teachers of the Jewish law, right? The Mosaic law, the law given to Moses to the people of the Israelites, to the people of Israel. They became the main teachers and interpreters of the Mosaic law. And over the course of time, they established these rules and these traditions intended to help get people to abide by the law. Okay? But over the course of time, their teaching ended up being about teaching upon what other people taught. So they taught based on commentary, based on commentary, based on commentary. So they based these traditions, these rules, intended to help people be abiding by God's law. But over the course of time, they became traditions upon traditions upon traditions, teaching upon teaching upon teaching upon teaching. And one of the rules or traditions that they established was this idea of ritualistic washing. Now, God had instructed Aaron, the priest, the first priest, and uh, the fellow priest to, before they went into the tent of meeting, before the altar, they must wash their hands and feet. 
They were to put on clean robes, clean clothing, holy clothing, before they entered the presence of God. But the Pharisaic tradition took that law by God, and they applied it to all the people and across different contexts. So the tradition they stated was that before you washed your hands, or before you ate, you must wash your hands. You must approach your, your food with clean hands. That tradition. Now many of us, especially when we were kids, maybe your parents, you're, you're an adult now, but maybe your parents still do this. Have your parents ever called you to dinner or to a meal? And you rush over to the table, and what's the first thing your mom probably, or your dad asked you, did you wash your hands, right? Did you wash your hands? And, and so we're, we're all familiar with that custom. But usually they're come asking you, did you wash your hands for hygienic purposes, right? And for, especially during the pandemic, we're all used to washing our hands before we eat. How many of you wash your hands far more than you've ever washed before? Right? During the pandemic, everyone is washing their hands like more thorough than they've ever done before. I don't know if you've ever been like this in the bathroom during the pandemic, right? You go in, you make sure you're washing your hands. So you get your hands in the water. Then you get the soap. You scrub and you're like 15 seconds, whatever it is. And then you rinse it. And then you're about to turn off the water. But then, oh no, the handle. I have to touch the handle. So you touch the handle, but then you're like, my hand's dirty. So you got to wash your hands again. You get the soap. You wash it again. You grab the towel. Then you, you, you get the paper towel and you turn off the water. And then you go to, you throw out the towel. But then, oh no, I have to touch the door. So you're like, oh, I got to wash my hands again. Get the towel, get the towel and stuff like that. You know, we, we get obsessed with washing our hands now. And then we have to sanitize after we washed our hands. This tradition, though, that the Pharisees had, it wasn't just a matter of hygiene. It was a matter of whether you yourself would be clean or unclean. Imagine if your parents caught you eating without washing your hands. They didn't just say, oh, that's, that's dirty, that's clean, you're going to get sick. But that means you, my child, are unclean. You yourself become unclean. That would be a little strange. That would be kind of sad, right? But that's the idea. That's what the tradition became. What they did, this, this idea of ritualistic washing wasn't just for hygiene, but it was for cleanliness, purity, or righteousness. Mark noted that even the Pharisees, if they went into the marketplace where there were Gentiles or maybe other unclean people. Afterwards, they felt they had to wash themselves because otherwise they would be defiled by the people around them. So can you imagine having that mentality of cleanliness or purity that if you're even around other people who may be quote-unquote unclean, that you would become unclean? I don't know if you ever had that experience during the pandemic. You get so paranoid that you go in a crowded area and you're feeling like, oh, are they positive? Are they sick? And then you leave that area and you go and you feel like, oh, I got to wash myself. I got to shower. I got to wash my hands. You have that feeling of uncleanliness. 
But that's the idea that they perpetuated based on what God had ordered these priests. And they translated and they made these traditions to regulate, be the standard or measurement of cleanliness, righteousness, holiness. So when they saw the disciples eating without having washed their hands, they go to Jesus. They didn't say, Jesus, you know, that might be a good idea for they wash hands so they don't get sick. When they ask Jesus, they're scrutinizing Jesus. They're implying that, hey, you're their teacher, and you're letting them wash their hands against the tradition of the elders. You have a responsibility here, Jesus, and you're letting them be unclean. Look what Jesus says. And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of, your, of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of man. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to the father or his mother, anything of mine you might have been helped with or helped by is Corban, that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you did many things such as that. So here the Pharisees and the scribes, they're accusing Jesus and his disciples for being unclean. But Jesus is about to blow the cover over the, the Pharisees and the scribes. He calls them hypocrites. This Greek word for hypocrite is used 17 times in the New Testament, specifically and contained in the Gospels. Of the 17 times it's mentioned, 15 of them is referred directly to these Pharisees and these scribes. Kind of interesting, right? He's pointing out to the Pharisees their hypocrisy. And Jesus refers to the scripture in Isaiah, Isaiah 29, 13. And Jesus says, Isaiah rightfully or beautifully, excellently or well spoke of you. He said it right of you. In other words, you fit the description perfectly with what Isaiah was saying at the time. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Here's what Jesus is pointing out. He points out their hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, the hypocrisy of the scribes. And he says, you honor me, you honor with your words, but your heart is far away from God. They worship in vain. Their worship is fruitless. They teach the precepts of men as doctrine. What these men say, you hold it as gospel. You hold it as God's word. And then they hold the tradition of men, but neglect the commandment of God. 
Jesus says in verse 9, he was also saying to them, you nicely, correct that same word that Jesus says Isaiah rightly or effectively or beautifully said about you. He says, you rightly, nicely, beautifully set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Jesus here is using a little bit of sarcasm. It's like Isaiah rightfully described you by saying this, you rightfully or excellently or expertly, you're so good at this. You do such a good job at setting the commandment of God aside in order to keep your traditions. I can feel the blood boiling of the Pharisees and the scribes. They sing songs, they speak prayers, but their heart is far away from God. They value what other people say, the the other scribes, the other rabbis, all those things, they value them. They value their traditions over God's word. I was thinking about this. And time truly reveals that nothing changes about humans. Right? We all have the same problems or issues. It's easy to sing songs of worship when we come in. It's easy to say prayers. But how much of what we sing truly echoes our hearts? Do we really mean the lyrics that we are singing on a Sunday? When we pray to God, does it reflect our hearts? When we do things, do we do things to cover what's really going on in our hearts? You know, church history has shown a lot of people, they would rather follow other teachers and other pastors. They're more loyal to other men or women than they are of God. They're more interested in hearing a person speak, no matter what it is they're saying, than actually doing, taking time with the Bible themselves. I'll repeat that again. We so comfortably follow other people to the point that we may follow other people. We're more devoted to other people more than God himself. We're so attracted to hearing other speakers than spending time in the word ourselves. Spending time with God ourselves. Even throughout history, I've witnessed so many times, I've been around in different denominations, different kinds of churches, and I've seen There are people who are more passionate about defending their doctrine or their denominational traditions. They have such passion in defending those traditions more than even the gospel itself. I've had people criticize whether a message or what I'm doing in ministry because it's not maintaining a certain tradition, overlooking possibly people coming and hearing the gospel itself. It becomes about traditions or rules rather than the message itself. So the Pharisees and the scribes, they were hypocrites, but it wasn't because they were imperfect. Jesus didn't call them hypocrites because they were not righteous. It was because they covered their unrighteousness and hid behind the traditions. They hid behind the rules. They used it as a mask 
to mask the true condition of their hearts. They weren't hypocrites because they weren't righteous. They were hypocrites because they used their traditions to cover their unrighteousness, to make it appear that they were righteous. And it goes to show that rules, and I've mentioned it before, rules do not make us more righteous, right? Rules themselves do not make us more obedient. How many of you have ever been a teacher, right? I had my time as a teacher, And as a teacher, you make classroom rules, right? You guys all know the rules that your teachers may have. And teachers tend to see that, you know, there are some students that are, let's just say, a little bit more active than others, right? Whether intentionally or unintentionally, they're a little bit more out of control. They don't have the ideal classroom behavior. And teachers tend to see these students who tend to break the classroom rules. These are the bad students. But then you have some students who are like the perfect model students. They follow every classroom rule to a point that they will even tell the teacher who isn't following the classroom rule, right? Teacher, Johnny's not listening, right? And teachers tend to view the model student as, oh, they are the good students. As the dean, I've come across enough students to know the, 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 the students that tend to maybe misbehave compared to the ones that totally behave, they're not necessarily what you think they are. Sometimes those students who tend to break certain classroom rules... When it comes to tests, their work is honest. But the model student who's so focused on the A's, those are the cheaters. Parents are shocked. No way. Teachers are shocked. Because they think, well, they follow all the rules. But rules themselves don't make us better. They're they're, They're to be like boundaries. They're to help us, but they're not the effective power themselves. And Jesus gives an example of their hypocrisy. He says, for Moses said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, anything of mine you may have been helped by is Corban, that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. What is Corbin? Corbin was this practice of designating a gift, whether it's like money, as offering to God. You're dedicating this to the temple treasury. But by dedicating, saying, let's say if I have like $100, you're dedicated. This is designated as Corbin, dedicated to the treasury. However, the tradition does not legally bind them to actually forfeit whatever they designated to the treasury. Nor does it, let it, don't, nor does it uh, limit them from using it for their own personal gain. So what ended up happening is that if a father and mother was in need... And the son had resources to help them, but did not want to help them. They could say, oh, 
I designated this as Corbin, as giving it unto the treasury, unto God. But they never actually give it to the treasury. Instead, they continue to use it for personal gain. So you can imagine, in other words, you have parents who are in need. And you know you can help them. But instead of helping them, you keep what you could give to your parents. You say, oh, no, this is going to be for God. But you never give it to God. You only use it for your selfish gain. Can you imagine? Your parents are hungry. Can you imagine all her parents are hungry? And you have this delicious sandwich. You got a half sub sandwich. And you have one half And your dad or your mom says, oh, I'm so hungry. And you, you have that sandwich. And you say, you know what? You think, I can give half of this sandwich to my poor, hungry father or mother. But instead of doing that, you say, oh, it's too bad. When I prayed, I gave it as Corbin unto God. So since I gave it unto God, I can't give it to you. I'm sorry, father, mother. And you go, and you just munch down that sandwich yourself. That would be kind of sad, wouldn't it? So hopefully at lunchtime or dinner time, you have something good. Your parents say you're hungry. You don't say, oh, sorry, Mom, Dad, Corbin. You're eating it for yourself, right? But that was the hypocrisy that was going on. And Mark says, you do, and Jesus said, you do these things, other kind of things. You say to honor your father and mother, but you make these traditions. That as a, some kind of exemption of honoring the father and the mother. So what is the real problem? Well, Jesus shifts his focus. He's talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. He's addressing their hypocrisy. But then he's going to shift to a different audience. He goes on and says, And after he called the multitude to him again, and he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside the man which going into him can defile him. But the things which proceed out of the man and, and what defile... Oh, right, let me start over. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile that man. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus addressed the hypocrisy, and now he gathers the multitude around. He says, hey, listen, everybody, gather around. I want you to hear this. Listen to this. Pay attention if you have ears. Let, listen to what I have to say. And then Jesus says something very controversial for the day. He says, it is not what you put into your body that defiles you. But what comes out of your body is what defiles you. Now, why is that controversial? The Jews had dietary laws. There were certain foods that were considered clean and unclean by God. So they were to refrain from eating certain foods. They could not eat crab or lobster. They could not eat pork. They couldn't eat owls or eagles. Not that you'd want to eat an owl or an eagle. I don't know whoever did. But God established these dietary laws. And a lot of the laws were to be a contrast to set them apart from the nations. But for the Jewish audience at the time, they're hearing, wait, it's not what I bring into my body that defiles me. 
And I'm sure many of them thought, well, what about the foods we eat? We're not supposed to eat certain foods. Again, Jesus is going to shift his attention. So he makes this general announcement, this general teaching. It's not what you put into your body. It's what comes out of you. And he leaves it at that. And the people are left kind of thinking, what does Jesus mean? Next verse, 21. For from within, oops. Oh, I'm blowing it. Hold on. Hold on. You weren't supposed to see that one yet. Okay, hold on. Okay. I think it's off track, but I'm going to follow verse 21. From within, hold on. I'm all mixed up now. Where am I? Okay. There we go. And when leaving the multitude, Jesus had entered the house And his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you lacking in understanding? Also, do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because he does not go into it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach. Let me see if I'm on track. Okay. But into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. So we see another shift that Jesus makes. He went from the Pharisees to the scribes. He talks to the general multitude. And then when the disciples, when they leave the multitudes, they enter the house by themselves, they do something familiar. Remember, the disciples did this before. When Jesus was teaching the parables, right? After the multitude left, when they were alone with Jesus, they said, hey, uh, Jesus, what did you mean by that? Same thing. Multitudes leave. They're alone with Jesus. They enter the house, and they ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, what did you mean by what you said? And Jesus responded, not so subtly. What does he say to them? Do you not understand also? Do you still not get it? Are you still not understanding? He goes on to, dis- to say, the true cause of defilement is not what someone eats, but rather what proceeds from their hearts. I was going to share a story. I don't know if I have time for the story. Do I have time for the story? 1214, I don't have time for the story. I won't have time for the story. Maybe I'll share it. It'll come up sometime later. But what Jesus is saying, food does not defile a person. It does not make them unclean. There's all sorts of judgment by the foods we eat. How many of you have ever felt judgment by somebody when you said you ate somewhere? Right? I have. Right? I I had Tommy's this week. I already have a head shaking at me. How did you eat Tommy's? You must feel unclean. I got to admit, I didn't feel like totally clean, but it felt good eating it at the time, right? We as a culture, we put so much emphasis on our physique, on our physical health. Jesus is saying, it's not what goes into your body that defies what goes out of it. We're so focused on it, as you can see. 
We're so focused on physique, even society. It's affected Smokey the Bear. How many of you remember Smokey the Bear? One day, Michaela and I were driving home. We looked at this billboard. It's like, that's not Smokey the Bear. But they've changed Smokey. Look at the before and after pictures. This is what Smokey the Bear used to look like. Modern Smokey the Bear looks a little bit more fit. Why did we have to do that to the poor bear? We get so consumed with physical appearance, physical bodies, what we eat. We need to eat clean. How many of you have heard that phrase just this week? Do you eat clean, clean foods, clean ingredients? I'm not saying that's bad. Eat clean. Don't eat like terrible stuff. But do you pay as much attention to how clean your mind is? How clean your heart is? Do you pay much attention to what goes on into your mind, into your ears? James says this, from within, out of the heart of men, oh, I'm sorry, Jesus continues to say this, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the, the man. See, what Jesus does, he says, look, he takes the dietary restrictions. He says, you are no longer bound by the dietary restrictions. But he does not excuse any of these. He does not dismiss any of these. He says, out of the person, out of the heart comes what? Evil thoughts. And what else proceeds from the evil thoughts? Sexual immorality, fornication. This Greek word is where we get the word pornography. What's sexual immorality? Any sexual relations outside the marriage relationship, outside of what God had designed and intended sex to be, outside of the husband and wife relationship, outside of the male-female relationship. This has been the consistent message throughout Scripture. God has never deviated from this standard. Some proponents of homosexuality, I say it because, you know, we're confronted with this. Some proponents of it, and those who are Bible-believing, even Christians, will say, well, times have changed, and we need to allow certain things. Because after all, did Jesus specifically say this was evil, or this was bad, or this is forbidden? People have said that. They've asked that. Well, did Jesus say anything about it? Jesus didn't say homosexuality was evil. A lot of times they try to justify certain things, but look at what he's saying. He says sexual immorality is evil in the eyes of God. And it comes in the deceitfulness of our hearts. The evil intentions of our hearts. But he doesn't just say a certain sexual immorality. He says all sexual immorality is an evil before God. He goes on to say it's not just that, but theft, murder, 
adultery. So it's not just hetero or homosexuals. Look, if you have sexual affairs outside of your marriage design, that is an evil in the eyes of God. He goes on to say greed, evil purposes or evil desires, unbridled lust or sensuality, the shamelessness. You do sin, but you're shameless about it. There's no restriction for you. Envy, slander, pride, foolishness. These are all kinds of evil that come from our hearts. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust, his own desires. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. See, temptations, we may all face different temptations. We may all have different levels of temptations. But the reason is because our desires. When we don't have Christ, when we don't have the Holy Spirit in us, we are left to be enslaved to our desires. We will do whatever our desires tell us to do because we want to gratify those desires and we will look to gratify those desires in any way. And left unchecked, we will have all sorts of deviations from God's design, God's intention for us. Whatever will appease our desires. So our thoughts are vulnerable So when we hear certain things, hear certain attitudes, if we think about it, it starts to affect what we think, affect our attitudes towards something, and then it starts to appeal to our desires. And when it gets to our desires, then what happens? It dictates our behavior, what we do, how we respond. Paul says in Galatians, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of your flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. What is Paul saying to us? Before Christ, we are enslaved to our flesh. You will pursue and do whatever your desires are saying for you to do. But when you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, now there's a little bit of a conflict, right? You have the Spirit, what God desires for you, but your flesh may desire something contrary. So you have this conflict. So Paul is saying, if you have the Spirit, live by the Spirit, so you do not go by the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. I would say, if you're wrestling with temptations, that's probably a good thing. Why do I say that? If you're wrestling with it, that means something you're saying, this is not good. I would be concerned if there was no, there was inhibition. I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm just going to do whatever it is. Whatever my heart says, that's what I'm going to do. I'd be more cautious. I'd be more concerned about that person. Here's what I want us to end, and I'll end with this. Something to think about, something to marinate on. What are we to gain from this passage? 
First thing I want us to think about is to confront our own hypocrisy. Jesus confronted covering up imperfections with the guise of perfection through deceitful deeds, right? He uncovered the Pharisees. He said, look, you cover your unrighteousness, you cover your uncleanliness with these traditions to make it look like you're more holier, to make it look like you're more cleaner. But inside is not what you portray. And for us, before we come down hard on the Pharisees and the scribes, we need to be willing to kind of consider our own hypocrisy. Do we try to flatter God in worship? As if singing worship songs on a Sunday will cover up how we're really feeling inside. Does our songs that we sing truly reflect our hearts? Do our prayers truly reflect our hearts? Do what we do for the Lord truly reflect our hearts? Or do we use it as a cover to make make us feel better about how we really are? We have to be honest with it. We have to go before the Lord and say, look, Lord, I want you to address my hypocrisy. And we need to understand that addressing hypocrisy is not about the expectation of perfection. People look at Christians and think they're, they're hip- hypocrites, right? Oh, you go to church, you're such a hypocrite. They don't say it because you're not perfect. They say Christians are hypocrites because what they do is used to cover up their own imperfections, to make it appear that they're better than they really are. If we can truly be honest and say, use that honesty, say, God, I want to love you more than just singing these songs and then not really mean it. If people truly see authentic faith in Christ, they wouldn't see hypocrisy. They would see hope because they saw what you were. They saw where you were hurting. They saw your need, but they see you turning to God and putting your hope on him, praising him truly and truthfully. So we need to get our hypocrisy in check, but also we need a heart monitor. We need to listen to when the Holy Spirit is truly speaking to us. When the Holy Spirit is stirring in our hearts and revealing in our hearts, this is not right. This is not good. How do we respond to the Spirit? Right? We have heart monitors, right? That checks our pulse, checks our heart rate. They indicate to us if something is not good or something's not right. The Holy Spirit says, look, Let me show you when something is not right. He does it so that we can have a clean heart, a pure heart. I'll end with the thought. Jesus says, what you eat goes into your mouths, into your stomachs, and into the toilet. Literally, that's kind of what he says, right? What goes into your mouth, into your stomachs, and into your toilet. What Jesus says is what's coming out of your mouth, what's coming out of you, coming from your toilet. In other words, are you full of it? Or are you speaking a genuineness? Is what you are a reflection of what's going on in your heart? Jesus doesn't just call out the Pharisees and the scribes. 
He brings attention to all of us. What are we paying attention to? What we're eating, and in a minute we're going to, or what we're feeding our hearts, feeding our minds. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. And Lord, we can all be guilty of hypocrisy. We can all be guilty of moments of singing something that maybe we don't really feel. Or maybe we're not sure what it means. But Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would move in us, transform us, change us, address the the desires that are in us, the desires that should not be there, that is unhealthy, that is unclean, that is evil in your sight. And Lord, lead us to desire what you desire for us, what your Holy Spirit desires for us. May we pay more attention to what we feed our minds than what we feed our hearts, than what we feed our bodies. We lift this to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.